Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Richard Hobbs, the curator of the Roman Britain collection at a relatively unknown, hidden away little place called the British Museum. In this episode, Richard reflects on how growing up in Kent, not too far away from where I grew up actually, gave him opportunities to get involved in fieldwork, his time spent with the county's portable antiquity scheme, why he believes we need to rethink the occupation of Roman Britain, and how advances in scientific analysis of valuable objects can reveal not only where they originated, but how this might generate parallels between Donald Trump and late Roman emperors. We also chat about how his original career plan was to be a drummer in a band, how a young writer called Roald Dahl provided the definitive report on the discovery of the famous Mildenhall treasure, and how he first came to work for the British Museum after they laughed at him down the phone. Before kicking off the show, just need to say a quick thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies for providing an outreach grant to cover some of the expenses for this podcast. In case you ever wonder, I actually make zero money out of this, so their help is much appreciated. And of course, thanks to you for tuning in, dear listener. Don't forget you can rate and subscribe iTunes and Spotify. And now, on to the show. Christmas, the museum is rammed, but the departments are really quiet. So actually, you get more done in the times when the galleries are busier. So if the museum from outer space looks incredibly busy, that's probably the time when curatorial work, you can really get something done. (laughs) So there is an inverse relationship. So that's a bit odd, because if you work for a public institution, um, I guess the public perception would be that if if you're going for a very busy period, they say like summer holidays then, oh, it must be really tough because there must be so much stuff going on. It doesn't really work like that, to be honest. Mm. It's actually intended to be quieter because <laughs> most of your colleagues are away so you can get more done, basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in general, like, what's, it, what's it like working for the British Museum? <laughs> I mean, in some respects, I say to some people, it must feel like, maybe a bad way of referring to it, it's the Holy Grail, but you know what I mean? Like getting somewhere like the British Museum, like this kind of established institution that's, I've got its own long history now. Yeah. What's it like to work for the British Museum? Oh my goodness. Um, I've worked here on and off since 1991. So that's not too far off being for 30 years. Oh. Yeah, that's quite a long time, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I was born two years before that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was 50 this year. So, uh, yeah. Um, I think there, I guess there's two things really. I mean, obviously the collections are amazing, really extensive. I mean, just to take example, in my area, you have all the stuff from Charles Roach Smith, which forms the core of the Romana British collections. Okay. And that's like 5,000 objects. So most of the really well-known stuff that you see upstairs, like for example, the fragments of tomb of, uh, of classic Yarnets and so on, are Roach Smith things, or at least associated with Roach Smith. Um, and so um, you those kind of big antiquarian collections are one thing that you've always got kind of new insights into. And then, of course, we have these really big archaeological collections as well from previous BM excavations at places like Stony or Mucking or Yuli and those types of things. So I guess the collections is one aspect. And then it's, it's sort of like the people that you you work with an encounter uh, I guess by default are going to be quite interesting characters so mm, yeah. <laughs> you know intellectually it's very stimulating 
And I think it's a bit different to working in a university. I don't want to disparage university, uh, the university environment, but I think that my partner's works at a university, so I kind of have an insight. Um, I think that in a university, you tend to plough your own furrow. You know, you kind of do your own research in your own kind of way and on your own things, and your contact with students is also quite kind of individual. I guess there are less opportunities for interaction with colleagues in a wider sense because you're all so busy doing your own thing that um, that's very different to here where we're constantly collaborating Mm. because the collections kind of force you to do that. So, for example, we always are always talking to our conservators and our scientists looking at objects. So that's a conversation that you're having about different ways that you can approach material. You're always referring to your colleagues about objects that have been submitted, say, through the treasure process, because we have to deal with objects coming through that system, because obviously there are often cases where we can't make a decision on something. You know, what what does it date to? Has anyone seen anything like this? Mm. You know, is it medieval? Is it prehistoric? Is it Roman, etc.? And so, yeah, you're always working with others. And then the more public-facing stuff as well, takes you in that direction. So if you're working on an exhibition, you're going to be collaborating with others to, because it's very rare that you would do an exhibition which is purely focused on just your field. Mm. So, yeah, it's... um, Going back to the original question, um, it's an amazing place to work because of the the richness of the material and the collections and and the people, really, that are here. And, of course, um, we are... We are supposed to be civil servants as well. So there's the aspect of the public. And the public, again, are a huge variety of, you know, coming in all shapes and sizes. And, and they want different things. So I might one day be answering a letter from a group of school children whose teachers got them to write in to demand the return of the Milner treasure. Yeah. So, you know, it's just to some professor from a German university who wants to know something very specific about a particular object, which I myself may not have even realised we had, you know. So it, mm. it really is hugely varied. And that that's also uh, makes the job very stimulating. No day is ever the same. All of us have to sit here in front of emails, but you do that as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> So I suppose, yeah, I suppose it's, uh, I suppose it's the huge variety of different ways of interacting with the collections that are, are, the, are the really appealing thing and the interesting thing. Do you remember the first time you ever came here to the British Museum? Um, it certainly wasn't as a child, um, oddly. Um, I don't even remember coming here on a school trip. And I can't honestly have on heart say I ever imagined working in a museum when I was younger. Okay. So, uh, it's purely by accident, really. My first memory of being here is going to the coin department to have a lecture about coins, have a study about coins, and that was part of my university degree. Mm-hmm. That's probably an embarrassing admission, but um, you know, you get people who say their parents always dragged them around museums yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. No, my parents didn't do that. To oh, really? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> usually, you, well, I mean, usually, I actually come around to this towards the end, like these kind of yeah. the, the the how did you get into yeah. that? Oh, we can yeah. go down that route now. But I, mean, I was going to quickly say, I remember being, I can't remember how old I would have been. I must have been still at primary school, but I still remember being downstairs, sat on a bench near the entrance next to my dad, reading a like a, you know like a kid's book, but it was like 
translating hieroglyphs, like not exactly, mm. but you know what it is, like where it's like you're like mm, trying to work out this means this word, this means this word. I still remember that to this day. I don't know why it's always imprinted in my mind that image. I must have been waiting for my mum to do something, but it was just very. Yeah, I still remember that. Don't remember much else from the day, but yeah, that left a seems to have left a big imprint on me. But I mean, I come from like sort of around sort of southeast London anyway. So do I. So, yeah. Oh yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah, you used to be. You used to work for the Portal Antiquity Scheme for yeah. in Kent, right? Yeah. Where did you come from originally? I'm actually born in Elton, which is no way. Yeah, oh, I come yeah. from Welling. Yeah, uh, well, I know, I know very well. Um, we lived in New Elton, which is very close to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are you are you still around there now, or are you? No, no, I live in East London now, and and you know, growing up in South East London. Or some people yell at me and say that you come from Kent, not London. But no, no, I, I don't. Of, I don't think that's true. Kind of London now. Yeah, London just grows and takes exactly. Yeah, and takes everything over. Um, no, I didn't have any. I didn't have any passion for this. If I'm honest, okay. at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was purely by accident. How did, so? How did you come to it then? How, well, how you... I mean, I, I, I did. I went to a school where um, you, um, you're encouraged to do. Sciences, actually, um, sciences and, and possibly possibly languages. I can't remember. Was this school in Elton then? Or? No, it was, uh, it was in Lee. It was Colf. Uh, I got a scholarship to go there. I didn't have. I don't have rich parents. Um, <laughs> um, it was a public school, but it, but I had a scholarship to go there. Um, and I enjoyed doing classical civilization O level. I'd already dropped Latin um, to do German and. From classical civilization, they then offered the opportunity to do ancient history at A level. And, uh, basically they tried to, they also tried to push that out. And so at one point I wasn't able to do it. But then our parents all protested. So they, they kind of relented and allowed the, allowed us to run. That's right. Cause I think there was too few students. I think it was only like eight or nine of us okay. doing ancient history at A level. And the other thing I discovered recently, which came as a bit of a surprise to me, was that, um, I basically, I went back to the school for the first time in a long time, a few years ago, to celebrate the 80th birthday of my ancient history teacher, someone called Stan Wolfson. And uh, I discovered that they alternated between doing Latin and ancient history. And I happened to fall into the ancient history, uh, into the ancient history bit. Anyway, part of that ancient history A level at the time was a Roman Britain module. So that kind of got my interest. But um, this person in particular, Stan Wilson, was a very influential person in my life because he he offered us the opportunity to go on a dig one summer. Oh wow! And because he was friends with Brian Philp down in Kent, uh, so okay. dear old Brian. And um, <laughs> and so I I said I'd like to go, and a few of us went and um, ended up digging in Woolwich, oh. so called Woolwich Power Station site, which was this very weird site. I mean, I remember spending most of my time digging up Victorian rubbish dumps. It wasn't yeah. really much. There was archaeology there, but it was incredible. It was a, it was a multi-period site. And it was, yeah. I think there was a lot of confusion as to what was going on there. But the second time, the second summer I worked for them was um, at Orpington Roman Villa, which oh, is still there. Yeah, I went there a couple of, <laughs> years, a couple of years ago. I'd never yeah. been there before, so I popped in to, to have a look. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a great to see. Only um, villa that's been is it the only villa that's been excavated inside the M25, or it's the only yeah, like quite, quite possibly. Um, and I loved. I just. I just. I guess I just got hooked on on you know digging. Um, I enjoyed digging. Um, my parents loved it because I basically spent the entire summer out of the house, hmm. and um, I worked there Monday to Friday basically, and 
Brian used to pay us. You know, we, we got paid, uh, um, uh, you know, a nominal amount. So I had a bit of spending money. So I really just caught the bug, I suppose, for archaeology at that point, having not really considered it as a, as a, as an option. And then, um, that kind of made, that kind of affected my thinking in terms of doing a degree. Um, and then that ended up at UCL under the tutelage of the great Richard Reese, who obviously oh, yeah. Ellen as well is a <laughs> people yeah. of. Yeah. So I guess those two were the ones that, that led me into this whole yeah. thing. What was it like being taught by Richard? I know Ellen, when she was on the podcast, talked about he'd had a, he had a tremendous impact on her. And actually, funny enough, originally when I was going to start doing a podcast, mm-hmm. um, my, it was going to be far too niche to just focus on Roman Britain, but I was, <laughs> it was going to be initially about Roman Britain and I was going to call it something like my Roman Britain right yeah, after yeah, this book, but yeah. I had to go yeah. wider. But, uh, but yeah, what was it, what was it like? Um, I mean, again, I mean, I suppose my, I always had a soft spot for Richard from the beginning because I, I, I wasn't planning to go there. Um, I did something that a lot of, um, teenagers do. So I joined a band and I was, I think I was going to become a pop star. So I actually, I actually messed up my whole kind of, um, university path because I had to play somewhere else. Um, so I had to, I had to withdraw from that and it was all very last minute. So I remember I wrote to them at UCL and asked if there was any possibility of getting on the degree course and, and Richard was the uh, missions tutor at the time. So I remember having a chat to him and uh, and he kind of offered me a place there and then. So right from the beginning I had a nice, a nice mm, yeah. kind of relationship and feel for Roman archaeology. And I think that... Um, the thing that you get there is uh, he sort of presents this, he presents you with what the course is going to cover. And it was, it was this real feast of things. I mean, uh, you know, like a Roman me- uh, material and methods, I think it was one. So you sort of did pottery and, and coins and all sorts of stuff like that, which it was kind of going against the zeitgeist because there wasn't, wasn't very, there wasn't a great deal of interest in material culture in the, this was, would have been the, late 80s and the United States, there was much more focus on like landscape archaeology and um, I think part possibly related to the bad things that happened things like Wanderer with the you know the night hawking of the site and the sort of bad relationship with metal detecting and I think that was partly and I think also partly because of the fact that finds and material culture in a in a fieldwork context were always relegated to the post, this, uh, that's post X. We don't really, mm. we don't really think about that. We're more focused on the, on the, you know, the, the whatever there is left, the physical remains. And so Richard kind of had gone against that in, 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 in a way because he was he was very much about teaching, um, about the objects and how they fitted into the, the bigger picture. And but again, I didn't have a particular strong interest in material culture. It's just that. You know that though that seemed to be that seemed to be appealing to me. I had thought I did when I was at school. I did collect a couple, two or three Roman coins because, again, going back to my A level tutor, he encouraged us to do stuff like that. So I used to buy a few Roman coins and show show them to him. He used to laugh. <laughs> Why did you buy that? Um, sort of thing. And so again, of course, Richard's work on coinage was the, was his main thing, a main passion. And then I distinctly remember he began to talk about the third century and he began to talk about inflation and how the coinage might relate to inflation. And I think I made a comment 
because I'd done economics A level, I made a comment which seems to strike so strike a chord in him. And he sort of, wow, I never thought of it like that. That's amazing. So we kind of had a, we started to build a rapport, and then he encouraged me to go on and do post postgraduate uh, PhD, which I, again I'd never never would have occurred to me really. So <laughs> you'd be surprised how many people seem to their archaeological career seems to progress through almost. Not exactly happy accident. Uh, there well, was, there's I, not always that yeah, intention there. I, I it, just, so. it just, but it just seems to pick up steam, or, or you meet so. the right people at the right time. And but when you think about it, when you're doing your O levels and A levels and stuff like that, you're too young to know what you're going to do with your life. I think. Oh, I did. Really? Yeah, yeah I, I was. I, I don't know. I, I, I realized though in that regard, I am quite unique. Yeah. That from a very young age, yeah. I was like, I mean, my youngest memory was I wanted to dig up dinosaurs. Yeah. And then I go into horrible histories, which kind of switched to, to archaeology, more human history. I didn't know necessarily it was going to be like Roman archaeology, but the idea of an archaeologist, for some, for some reason, from a very, very young yeah. age, stuck with me. But yeah, I mean, I know so, so many people, and so many people I've spoken to doing this podcast, it's never been a given that they were going to end up doing, an, doing archaeology. It was just something that, say, uh, yeah. for whatever reason, the right events or meeting the right people, it's just led them down that path. I think that's right. And again, the re- reason I ended up here was, as part of Richard's um, Roman coin uh, course, he, he sent us for one session on, on, on Greek coinage here. Um, and um, I... <laughs> You know, it's, it's it's weird how I mean I'm a bit of a fatalist, but um, um, it's weird how things work. Because I remember after after when I finished my degree, I didn't know what to do with myself. I I I phoned up the person that had given this lecture and said, you know, do you have any jobs in the British Museum? And he just laughed and said, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> but I don't know why I did this, but I sent him a letter anyway, and I sent him my CV. And, and he did. He called me and said, "Well, we do have we have a little bit of money to do a little project, on a, like a computer project, which is what I ended up doing in the coins department." So again, that was just uh, luck, really. I was a bit of a loose end, and mm. um, but again, that probably wouldn't happen today. That was you know, it was just different times. Mm. But you know, I I then I then worked um, in the coins department for a couple of years, and I published the um, catalogue of Iron Age coins. Again, I didn't have a particularly strong interest in Iron Age coins before I started looking at them, but found them to be fascinating objects and got and got sucked in. Mm. So I did that. I did, I did that. Published that at the same time as I was doing my PhD. Ask just one very quick question: yeah. When you're in a band, <laughs> what, what are the influences? Oh God, I was a, I was a, um, I was a, very much a child of the '80s. So it was all it was all Spiffs and the Cure and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a drummer. Still play much or no? no. <laughs> no funny enough, I sold the drum kit to buy a computer, so that was it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, I mean uh, uh, the sort of Milton Hall thing is quite interesting because I remember reading the the Roald Dahl story when I was um, when I was growing up because I liked Roald. Roald Dahl for, was kind of my generate. You, you basically had Enid Blyton for people born in the nineteen. 19- 30s and 40s, and then you had you had Roald Dahl for people born in the 60s yeah. and 70s, I, I, I read a lot of 80s, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose it carried yeah, on, yeah. and then of yeah. course now it's J.K. Rowling. Um, and uh, so I remember reading. I, I got the first edition of the book of short stories that the Mildenhall Treasure story is published in Roald Dahl's account of the discovery, and uh, I remember that struck a chord. But again, I don't. I didn't like you know 
plead with my parents for them to take me to go and see the movie mm-hmm. Treasure. Yeah, yeah. But it always stuck in my mind when I, you know, when I was doing my um, doing my um, degree and so on. So it was quite funny actually because when when I was doing my degree and when I ended up doing this PhD on, on late Roman precious metals, you know, Mildenhall was always there. And it was funny because whenever I used to, um, people of Richard's generation, Richard was 80 this year, he would say about the Mildenhall treasure, yeah, but was it actually found at Mildenhall yeah. or was it from somewhere else? And I remember distinctly saying to him, yeah, but what about Roald Dahl's story? And he used to give me a really blank look and I used to think... You know, I didn't really think much of it. And then it's the penny dropped that some of the richest generation, they wouldn't have read Rolf Dahl because yeah. he was a children's writer. So why would you know about him? Yeah. And so it's, I suddenly thought to myself, um, maybe Dahl was onto something. And maybe Dahl actually has got the definitive account of the discovery of the real treasure. And no one knows this because they're all of a generation that won't have read Dahl. And then, of course, it transpired that when I spoke to people here, they knew all about Dahl because... You know, kids that had read the story did come and see the treasure. So they, they you know, they were led to the Milton treasure through Dahl. Um, but anyway, that that was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other thing about Richard was he, he 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 never dismissed any idea as as outlandish and you know crazy. He was very open to new ideas, and he always encouraged you to think in a in a in a wider sense. He was. For, certainly for his PhD students, he didn't want them to do anything that was a bit too narrow. He wanted to do stuff wider. So for me, he encouraged me to look at very... what I looked at I looked at basically deposit hoards, you know, deposits of coins and bullion and jewellery and precious metals, uh, silver plate and so on, over a 500-year period, a very wide chronology. And again, that was quite against the, the trend at the time. But it's interesting because, you know, now we're in an age where you get these hugely expansive studies, don't you, of mm. global trends. So, you know, Barry Cunliffe started writing these books about, yeah. you know, the birth of Eurasia and the whole, these very wide-sweeping studies. Now, I couldn't write something like that because they're, they're just way too big. But it was interesting that even back then, this is in the sort of early 90s, Richard was, you know, trying to make us think in those sort of global terms. And that's 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 quite interesting, I think. Mm. That he had that he had that sense that we should look at this stuff in a bigger way. And he himself, you know, he's gone from not worrying about individual coin types and assigning RIC numbers to thinking, well, when you get these coins from a Roman site, what does it tell you about the wider picture of what's going on in terms of the economy mm. and the way people are living and interacting and so on? Which again is is uh, was something that that most numismatists were not doing. They were interested in the, you know, the, I don't want to be unkind, but the, the more trained pottery parts yeah. of coin studies, you know. We have 53 RIC, 8, number 44 of Emperor X, you know. Or focusing on the, on the, um, the portraiture or the iconography, which of course is important. But, you know, Richard's saying, yeah, but what do all these coins mean from those excavations? Mm. What do they tell us about life in Rome, Britain or, or the Roman Empire at the time? How do they, how do they all interact? And I think that that, that, that approach to Muratero culture uh, was something I really got a lot from. 
and, and have tried to take that forwards through my subsequent research. Mm. It's interesting, just quickly to go back to what you were saying about um, the Royal Dahl influence. Uh, this thing I'd, I'd really like to look into, I think particularly in the 20th century, I'd be really interested to see what the kind of overall impact um, the, the media has on, on people, particularly in terms of things like literature, because as you were saying about Dahl affecting people of your generation, but obviously people of an early stage would have read things like Richard Kipling, who wrote a bunch of things in Rome, mm. Britain, Rosemary Sutcliffe as well. I mean, when yeah. Ellen was on the podcast, she talked about Rosemary Sutcliffe reading those novels when she yeah. was younger and them having yeah. an impact. It's interesting how those things seem to do actually play a role in how people develop like an interest. As you're saying, sometimes it's not always direct. They don't read those books and then go, I want to be an archaeologist or whatever. Mm. But for some reason that kind of sticks with them and then it kind of comes back to them later on. It's, it's yeah, I find those, those kind of aspects are really interesting about the, yeah, the, cause I said, I mean, it's, it's more, more obvious, but for me, <laughs> like horrible histories growing up was the, yeah. the thing that had a tremendous yeah. impact on me. Yeah, it's interesting. Those things that stick with you as a kid and how you, you end up further down the line. Absolutely. They, they do shape you. It's undoubted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bit of a hackneyed question. I'm sure you've been asked many times, but do you actually have a favorite object in the museum? <laughs> is it? Uh, I hate that question. Because <laughs> uh, I can never think of a good answer. Um, I... <sighs> <laughs> Well, it very. It, I guess it varies on a. If you want to say the Statue of almost, Mithras, almost daily, <laughs> yeah, Statue of Mithras, almost on a, almost on a daily basis. Um, uh, I don't know if that's there. I don't know if that's here at the moment. I've got a feeling no, that's, that's on tour. It's, I think it's, it's been gone a long time. Now, I think yeah. it's been off for a long time. I mean, um, you know, the, I suppose the one that has been occupying my thoughts most is not actually a BM object at all. It's the this is amazing bowl they found in the. In a silver treasure in Croatia, the Vinkovsky treasure. Yeah, this is the one you're I, working on at the moment. Right? Yeah, well, I, I I did a joint article about um, about the treasure in, J, in the Journal of Roman Archaeology um, last time round. It's this hemispherical bowl that um, has a figure seated on a rock in the centre, and then when they X-rayed it, they discovered a Latin inscription which basically tells us, to cut a long story short, that the figure is that of Tantalus seated on a rock. Mm. And so what's what's great about this object is that it, it is um, basically a kind of like a party trick to play on someone at a dining party because you, you basically get given the bowl, wine is poured into it, and it basically has a mechanism where at a certain point the wine will basically drain throughout the through the bottom of the bowl, so you get covered in wine. Uh, and, and, and you know, from the research that we've done, I worked um, closely with um, colleagues in uh, in Croatia where the where the hall is. You know, we, we can't find another example of this in the ancient world. So okay. I think I think it's when you find. Um, I think it's when you find stuff that is just completely left field, and yeah. you can't really, you don't really, you don't, you don't really expect it. Yeah. Uh, I had a um, on a more mundane example, I suppose, is an object. I haven't actually seen this, but it's basically a tile fragment. Um, doesn't sound very exciting, but it it's supposedly from um, uh, Knossos, so it's in our Greece and Rome department. But the pattern is. Um, the only thing you you see on a British tile okay. design, right? So it's, it's a well-known British tile design, and um, 
what looks seems to have happened is, I mean, obviously this would have had a, a major impact on our thinking about Roman Crete if <laughs> if this tile is supposedly from Knossos, yeah. but it's a British tile stamp. But um, what seems to have happened is that the owner of the tile has passed it to someone in the you know um, from his collection to someone else, and they've then it's been mistakenly attributed to to Crete, but it's not. Yeah. So that makes it less interesting. But it kind of reminds us of the fact that if we don't study this material in, in detail, we can make all sorts of wrong assumptions about the ancient world. Yeah, which is, yeah. which is um, because I think I feel often that there's a sense that, well, we know everything now. You know, we kind of like, why do we need to carry on researching stuff? Because we know everything. And that's quite a good example of, well, if we didn't have the people who have that quite narrow specialism in, you know, the 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 different types of roller stamps you'll find on, you know, tiles in Britain, you wouldn't be able to make those, you wouldn't be able to make those sorts of judgments. No. And so, um, you know, having that kind of specialist knowledge is is really, really important. And you kind of worry it might get lost in the the way things are going really yeah we're we going towards more generalist and populist views mm. of things you know it's interesting as like people have said before one of my colleagues Matthias who was on the podcast just a very different kind of era of research but he was talking about things like languages as well the mm. fact that you know everybody but you know, people study mainly Latin and, and Greek mm. as the two two languages if you do classics at university but there are all these other languages in the ancient world and there's it, sometimes it feels like some of those languages there's less and less people that actually know mm. them and then what's going to happen one day if something completely new gets found but there's no longer anybody around who's got that skill with yeah. it and how do you I mean because there's isn't it at the British Museum is it Irvine Finkel is the guy here Irvine Finkel yeah, yeah. he's the guy who does Kinefel Kinefel yes and he's, there's not many people that do that anymore now which there? incidentally was also by accident because he he's planned to study Egyptian hieroglyphs and then two weeks into his course, his tutor died of a heart attack or an aneurysm or something. And he was, he was at a loose end, didn't know what to do. And he was suggested that he went down the corridor a bit further to talk to the guy that did, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended up doing that instead, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah. But no, it's true. I mean, it is, it's, uh, I mean, one, uh, I guess the example of that, I mean, it is, it is Latin, but it's, it's you know, it's the Vindolanta tablets, which we, mm. we have here. Um, they're very important documents you know they, they are an incredible archive um, there are, we have we now have about 1700 uh Vince tablets i mean most of them are fragments with nothing on um in our collection so it's a big it's a big set of material and um you know the the skills needed to decipher these objects are very very you know rare now there aren't that many people who can actually read them because they're, they're written in cursive cursive mm. Latin um, often with grammatical mistakes and using of, often very obscure terms and also of course says as they're from Britain they can have you know a particularly British aspect of the Latin so you do I worry about the fact that you know we need to ensure that there's those people that can, can they carry on looking at this stuff mm. Um, and that comes down to, you know, con- you know, governments continue to want to invest in those subjects. If no one teaches Latin in schools anymore, you've got no chance of no. someone in the future being able to decipher this stuff. So we have to be careful. We, we can't assume that there'll always be 
the individuals around who can do this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just you know, diff- difficult times that we live in, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Those things, I suppose, at least as long as you have like one person that kind of passes it on, <laughs> so, you know, there's that well, like, one know. last person that kind of. Well, I mean, like, hopefully more people learn it again. But as long as somebody's kind of at least keep, there's somebody will keep it going. Right. Never hits a never hits a complete dead end. Should um, write to Extinction Rebellion and, and say that you know this is yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a big problem for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you worked um, for a little while as. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Paul Antiquity Scheme for Ken. When, so, so you went, you're at the British Museum. Did you go to PAS and then come back again? No, actually, what happened was I, when I was, um, I finished my PhD in 1997. So it was at that point when I was looking for, um, basically, I was looking for a job, and that was when the scheme was starting up. So, I, um, I was told that there was a position coming up in Kent, and it was one of the first. It was like the pilot period of the project, actually. I think there were only seven counties at the time that had a liaison officer. So I, I was appointed as the first Kent officer. And actually, I was only there for just less than a year, I think. Okay. Yeah. Where was that based? Was that Maidstone? Uh, Maidstone, yeah. Okay. yeah. So still at Maidstone. It's still at Maidstone, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was, very much the, it was very much the early days of the scheme. We were learning a lot of stuff. We were trying to work out how best to, you know, go about things in practical terms. So... I used to drive around to the, the different metal sets in clubs, different parts of Kent, um, got to know people down there, um, had a little working group with people like Keith Parfit, who oh, you yeah, know, yeah. in the Keith at Canterbury Trust. And, and um, it, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was a, it was a good period um, to kind of get involved. Um, and then, of course, you... As someone with a background in Roman coins, uh, Iron Age coins, primarily Romana British material culture, suddenly having to be exposed to stuff that could come from any period mm. is quite is quite a challenge actually, um, uh, because you know it could be bits of Bronze Age axe, or it could be a, a medieval um, seal matrix, or it could be all sorts mm. of things. So that was that was really good. Yeah. It again forces you to think more broadly. I mean, my heart used to sing when I used to see um, those silver pennies of various Edwards kings, <laughs> which weren't actually Edward, they said Edward on them, but they were a completely different king entirely. So medieval coins were just used to make, as I say, used to make my heart sing. But um, yeah, so I, I did that for a while. Um, and then I, uh, I, I came back to the museum to become part of the central unit, kind of administering the scheme and promoting it. I did that for a while as well. <laughs> More recently, you've been involved in the Empires of Faith project. Is that still going? Is that, what's that coming No, the Empires of Faith project's come to an end. Um, you may have seen the exhibition at the Ashmolean that they did. It make you do, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is a Imagining the Divine exhibition at the uh, Ashmolean, which, is, which was very good because it was put together by the, the project team. Um, I had a fellowship with the Empires of Faith project um, for a year. And I'm, I'm I'm literally just working on the the, the major paper that came out of that. What was work. the project all about? Just well, my my that. aspect of it was um, uh, I was looking at the use of silver plate um, cross culturally between the late Roman Empire and the Sasanian Empire. I was looking mm. at the imagery that appears in those different cultures because they both use silver plate in parallel, but they, the imagery that appears on it is very, very different. 
and I'm trying. I've been trying to explore what those what that can tell us about their approach to the use of the, the material. Um, the big problem I've run into is the fact that whereas for the Roman material you've got quite a lot of good contextual information in the literary sources and in the art historical evidence. So, for example, you get wall paintings that show silver plates in use and so on, so you can kind of understand how the surviving material might fit into that um, setup, into that context. There is nowhere near that amount of data for the Iranian and Sasanian material. Mm. That makes it quite hard. Because then you're, then you're primarily focusing on the objects themselves. And there's also big provenancing information. So again, whereas for the Roman material, we know quite a lot about where it's buried, and that gives us obviously an insight into why it might have been buried and how it might be used, most of the Sasanian stuff is unprovenanced. So it limits what you can do. Mm. But nevertheless, it's very interesting. It, it's, it's interesting the different approaches. So for example, throughout the entire almost the entire history of the manufacture of these silver plates in the Sasanian Empire, the key image is the king on horseback in full regalia out hunting. You know, he's firing a bow and so on and so forth, and you see the animals in the field and the vessels uh, in various states of, of death throes. Um, you don't get that at all on the on the Roman material. They're using a whole different range of, of imagery entirely. Mm-hmm. And the only parallel I can find is is of um, one image of an emperor, Constantius II, on horseback, again in full regalia. But it's one of those kind of trampling the barbarian type images, yeah. which is very common on the coinage and on, on monumental sculpture it's, and so on. Seen that one before. He's got a halo going yeah. on with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And interestingly, that plate, which is from from uh, the Crimea, um, maybe the imagery and that and the Sasanian king imagery, there's some link between them. So I've been exploring those sorts of questions. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm not an art historian, so I tend to approach things very differently. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, if you're an art historian, you just look at the imagery and you think about that. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I want to look at the vessels, you know, what vessels are they using? How big are they? You know, can you hold it in one hand or two hands? Mm. You know, are you looking at this in the context of a temple? Or are you looking at the context of a of a elite person's dining room? You know, how, how is it being used? Yeah. Are they pouring libations from it? Or are they pouring water onto their hands to wash them? You know, if, if we're talking about a, a pouring vessel. So it's things like that that I'm, yeah. I'm interested about interested in it's a slightly to be honest it's slightly off topic for empires of faith as, as okay. a project but um you know we're a we're a broad church <laughs> <laughs> church being the outwork yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah so that as you say then that, that's come come to an end now yeah, that's come to right. an end yeah i mean the, the broader projects um are they're publishing a number of there's a number of outputs including a a book called images of mithra which i'm sure you know about yeah. so um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good thing to get involved in. Um, I, I went and gave a couple of seminars in Oxford um, and discussed my research and got some good feedback. And, um, and I think the the whole remit of that project, you know, kind of look at these these the different ways in which um, divine imagery is portrayed cross culturally in different faiths is is a very interesting one and, mm. and a good idea. Yeah, and I think we need to do more of that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just very interesting that, you know, that connecting the Roman Empire with its neighbours as well. Something that's just, I think, is quite a fascinating subject to, to explore. I mean, 
looking out, even like I, I suppose most people when they think of the Roman Empire, they don't really tend to think of like the Roman Roman Empire's connection to places like India, Afghanistan, and China as well, and you know, but all of these, you know, they're all interacting with each other. Maybe not always at the time, like directly, they might be intermediates, but yeah, it's very interesting how those things kind of these, you know, like a better word. Civilizations, I don't want to use the word civilizations, what's a better word? Cultures. Cultures, that's a better word. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, cultures interact with each other and affect each other, perhaps not. not I, th- I, think, I think it's, in, for me, it's the most most interesting thing that's occupying my headspace at the moment. So, yeah, I completely concur with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I f- also challenges you to, to look at your subject in a completely different way. Because, I mean, you know, we, we tend to, certainly if you work in Roman Britain, which is my curatorial area you tend to look you know eastwards yeah <laughs> if you're there you're looking at things in a completely different way it's very hard to actually think yourself into a different mindset so going back to this whole business about the relations in in, in a particular object type you know your default position is well the sasanian silversmith is clearly copying a roman model uh, hang on, it could be that way around, yeah, yeah. you know. But you, you, you. So you're you're trying to tease out those aspects as well. You're trying to make sure you're not making uh, embedded assumptions about how imagery is transmitted or how mm. you know the, the the ideas for how these things are used is transmitted because because it can it can definitely be the other way around. And in fact, um, I think a lot of the ways. The, the, all the uh, way in which, say, the late Roman and Byzantine court becomes more and more ritualized and uh, bureaucratic and so on, and actually has a lot of echoes of what's all what's been going on in the Persian world for a long time. Mm. So actually, um, you you could be more be talking about uh, a, a transmission in the other direction when they're actually trying to to model themselves on, maybe not missing that, but modeling themselves on. On you know these these exotic people in the east, mm. so that's interesting. Um, Do you think that the kind of history of approaches to Roman archaeology, where you know the traditional model was you know Romanization, like the Romans yeah. come in and they conquer somewhere, they take over, and they give they give civilization to people in inverted yeah. commas? Do you think to some degree as well that's probably a bit like, affected people's view of the Roman Empire in relation to its the the societies and cultures around the Roman Empire as you say with Persia like there's a presumption that people automatically assume that Persia would want to take from the Roman Empire because people think of that kind of model of Romanization what the Romans have got is always seemingly better but you know as we now know with mm. the provinces it's not actually that way you know, it's a much more complex process and uh, yeah do you think that's probably though had an effect though of how people have viewed those relationships I think I think I think absolutely it has because if actually if you think about it what what in terms of material culture and in terms of things like religious ideas, the Romans are drawing a lot of those from the East, aren't they? Mm. For a very long time, from the time of Hadrian onwards and before, they're, they're actually, that's where they're, that's what they're interested in. They're interested in the exoticism of what's going on in that part of the world. So that it's, yeah, I think it's much more the other way around mm. than, than we tend to think. I think Romanization has been quite damaging in that sense in terms of our intellectual you know, roots. Of yeah. <laughs> um, I also think, it also surprises me how the default position when we talk about Roman Britain still seems to be it was 
much better after the Romans came than it was before and how the Romans were, you know, had a positive impact on Britain. Well, you know, has anyone thought that maybe that isn't the case and maybe, you know, the the kind of like the the colonisation aspect of what they were doing was Mm. actually very damaging. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, I mean, I think I read something about someone had said that, you know, again, we look at Bath and we think, oh, amazing what the Romans did at Bath. Um, they built this incredible, you know, temple and Bath complex and transformed, transformed the, the sacred spring and so on. But, and then, of course, we had this whole idea of the, whole idea of the syncretism between Sullis and, Minerva and that all rather lovely and they all got along wonderfully but actually how do we what did the actual indigenous indigenous can we use that term what did the people who'd previously been working uh, worshipping Sulis as, as the sacred deity what did they think about mm. what happened yeah so you know, there's all that <laughs> stuff that's been done like with people like Jane Webster right? yeah. she argued about interpretatio is not about like yeah. a 50-50 marriage yeah. between deities that actually like Absolutely. Mars is one of the most common ones yeah. and it's that I mean it's like when you think about Britannia the actual personification of Britannia isn't the earliest image of Britannia the one where Claudius is yeah. basically kicking the crap out of her and yeah Cla- and Claudius is 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 depicted as this kind of six pack yeah <laughs> entirely <laughs> well, accurate I think this is funny as I think that aspect of this is, is great. Um, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's about propaganda in, yeah. in action. But yeah, so I think things like that is, uh, I, I, we, we're, we're still within, uh, the kind of, uh, Frere's Britannia way of looking. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I mean, at these yeah. to such an extent that I, could, I, yeah. I, I, I really feel we need to, we need to do a little bit of a reset about this. Um, you know, Boudicca, is still viewed as, um, in this rather odd sense, as, you know, the kind of attempt to subvert what, you know, history is on the side of the Romans and all she was really doing was, you know, trying to subvert that, but that was what shouldn't have happened. But actually, when you think about it, um, perhaps we should think of that in a completely different way. As mm. uh, something that could have led to a completely different history for this mm. I, uh, I don't know. I just, I just, I just, I, I quite like to read something that gives gives it from the other way around. But it's quite hard when all the historical sources, of course, are written from the Roman perspective. Yeah. <laughs> I taught Roman Britain last uh, back in the autumn term, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I, I think some of my students end up rolling their eyes a bit too much because, I mean, I did my MA in Leicester with people like David Mattingly, so mm-hmm. I'm very big on the whole kind of anti-Romanization. I'm just like, this is a word we don't use <laughs> unless we're saying it's a bad thing. But yeah, I mean, I kept telling my students, like, you've got to think about it in terms of this, this is a military occupation. I mean, there's more mm. Roman soldiers stationed in Britain than there are yeah. in the entire North Africa. Right? I mean, that's like, right, yeah. that is not a, yeah. that's not a, as I say, 50-50 split of power no. relationship. Like, these no. people have got power over the local people. I mean, when you build, like, Hadrian's Wall, I mean, people got to Hadrian's Wall and they're like, oh, you know, it's, the, mm. you know, people are impressed by it and they think it's this, mm. you know, amazing monument the Romans constructed, but, you know, people have discovered evidence of farmland underneath it. Like people mm. were living there who had yeah. to probably be actively like moved. Yeah. Uh, right, you yeah. know, there's, 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 I mean, 
I can't remember, I think it's in Canterbury where they found the, the burial of the two soldiers or they seem to have been perhaps murdered. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it was, I think it was in David's book, Imperial Possession, where he suggested, or maybe somebody else, I think it was him, that fact that they, they might have just been murdered by, by local people mm-hmm. who weren't happy about these soldiers who probably, you know, there probably were a number of good soldiers, but there were probably a lot of them that were just terrible and like probably treated the local people oh, of course. really badly. So, and, uh, yeah. Being a military person, um, goes often alongside those it, it kind of uh, sanctions it sanctions bad behaviour doesn't it mm. sanctions uh, uh, I mean there's I mean this, this I mean we can't imagine what like, what it was like at the time I mean some of the Vincent tablets have hints of those yeah. kind of things where you there's one letter of appeal which is you know, we don't quite know who it comes from, but clearly they're complaining about brutality yeah. at the it's hands the, of the trader that's been rough. Yeah, up exactly. Man. You know, so that must sort of thing must have happened a lot, and it's yeah. all lost to us. Yeah, I mean, I think the, some of the most fascinating sites are things like um, Hallerton in East in Leicester, um, because of the, you know, from that site you have these um, huge number of uh, coin deposits which are. In a, in a place where it's liminal space, so <clears throat> it looks as if it's done in a ritualistic manner, sort of borderline between settlement and the uh, natural world, should we say? But within that is these series of Roman helmets, and I had a when we first when this first came up, I I I had a hope that in one of those helmets would also be found fragments of a skull. So hmm. I had this idea of the of the, you know, the local people um, basically getting one over the Romans and, and, you know, lopping one of their heads off and, mm. and thinking, right, we're going to give this as a, you know, as a kind of ritualistic offering and two fingers up to the Romans type thing. Mm. Of course, there was no fragments of skull found. But the fact is that why are there Roman helmet fragments in these deposits? You know, what is that about? That's a hint, that's an insight, I think, into... into um, the resistance movement of some sort. We just haven't really characterised what that resistance movement is. Um, I was also reminded, uh, I was up in Edinburgh last week at a seminar about, because um, they're republishing the Trapperang Law Treasure, mm. uh, and uh, we had various specialists talking about this, and Simon Esmond Cleary, who was at Birmingham, professor there, he, he reminded us about the rise of St. Patrick and how everyone remembers the first bit of that, of St. Patrick, where he talks about how he was enslaved by, you know, people came and enslaved him, and he was captured and taken into slavery. But the interesting thing is the second part of that sentence is alongside thousands of other men. Mm. So (laughs) the other thing we forget is that there's an awful lot of human capital, which is completely invisible in the human record. People, as as you were talking about, you know, people being murdered and relocated against mm. their will and that includes um, kidnapping and enslavement and all those things and and so I think throughout a long period during you know at the beginning of the Roman conquest and and at the end that was a, that was a that was a that was happening a, a huge amount more than mm. we than we realize yeah I mean it's yeah. interesting as well there's all these people that are probably coming in as well like Provincials from from the likes of Gaul and, and other kind of already established yeah. provinces, who particularly in the early days of, of Britannia as a province, probably see it as a bit of a gold mine because it's yeah. a chance to make money out of it as well. And there's so you have like 
you have the Roman state that comes in and takes over mm. and has an impact, mm. but you probably have these people that are more autonomous as well who are coming in and, and looking at a way of making money out of yeah. it as well. And there's, yeah, I mean, there's probably mm. a loads of like power imbalances that exist. And yeah, yeah. well, that, I mean, going, I mean, on that point, um, the Bloomberg, Bloomberg tablets are very interesting because they, because they straddle the Boudicca revolt, the ones that date before the Boudicca revolt, Revolt. They're all about money and you know payment of debts and reckonings and that sort of thing. So straight away, London is this commercial centre where you know streets are paved with gold type mm. thing where you come and make a quick buck. And it's amazing how quickly after the Boudicca Revolt that it goes back to business as normal. Yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> this was a major thing. You know they burnt they burnt London down. They must, people must have died. People must have been relocated and families broken up and that sort of thing. And then within a you know a couple of months they're writing the same sorts of things down you know mm-hmm. he owes me x and we i you know we're going to transport these goods off here and so on and so forth yeah. so, just so the commercial yeah. life goes on it's interesting know. as well because <laughs> is there one of them as well that's about this is, is it in that, that there's a slave that owns a slave as yeah, well yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That, that is that was quite common yeah, yeah. yeah but it's yeah. Inter- i mean that as well like you know that i mean that's a, i think that's sometimes a misconception people probably have about those sort of things as well that mm. you know if you talk to someone on the street they think of slavery as being just master and slave but then slaves mm. could actually become very wealthy and have their own slaves yeah, and yeah. it's a, yeah there's a, a whole kind of relationships in their own mm. world that people or just even now that like even so-called experts so we don't really entirely fully understand mm. as well but yeah so i mean obviously i usually ask like moving forward like do you have any kind of ideas or would you like to see the the discipline go and obviously one of them is get rid of romanization uh, <laughs> um do you yeah. have any other kind of thoughts on that at all? or is there, or are there any kind of research avenues in your mind where you're like that would be interesting for people to to pursue um yeah i mean i guess there's 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 lots of things that we could talk about really um I mean, I suppose um, in my in my rather niche area of of precious metals, which is the thing I'm interested in, I suppose now looking at the more scientific techniques is is going to become more interesting. So we're now starting to look at ways of doing lead isotope analyses to look at ore sources. We want to know well, where did the raw material come from, where was it worked on, and then how does it then end up in Britain and then end up being buried. So you want to be able to establish a much better biography of mm. that particular object. And then obviously into the bigger picture stuff of how that then fits in. And so I think science might start beginning us start begin giving us more of an insight into those things. One of the most interesting things that sort of interrelates to what we were saying about imperialism is to what extent is the history of Roman Empire shaped by different individuals who rise to the top, kind of getting lucky in terms of their own um, family wealth and so on. Mm. Because a lot of those emperors in the 4th century are Balkan-based. Yeah. And I think what's happening is they're, they're involved in the discovery of new sources of silver, lead and silver and so on, and precious metals in that part of the world. And that gives them that... that you know that that advantage. So science might start to just give us some really interesting glimpses into how you can make those sorts of connections, mm. and I think those are really fascinating mm. because you know it's like we can we can find modern echoes of that. You know, I mean, who 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 are our populist leaders? They end up being those ones that come from wealthy backgrounds who have made 
money through real estate in certain places. I mean, Trump in New York, for example, and it's the same sorts of things happening. You know, you're not sort of born to it. You're kind of you're coming from a from a background. Or if you read about someone like Getty, who has had a couple of interesting films and, and miniseries made about him. You know, he was an oil man, but he just got lucky. His family discovered um, they had a plot of land in, I can't remember which state in, the, in, in America, but they had, um, you know, and they, they sunk they sunk a, a well, this is back in, the, back in the 40s, I think, and they struck oil and they made an absolute fortune from it. And interesting, Getty identified himself, was convinced that he was a reincarnation of the Emperor Hadrian. Yeah. You know, yeah. so he really was, and that's why he built, so he then built the Getty Museum, modelled on Tivoli, Hadrian's village at Tivoli. That's why if you go there, it looks like Tivoli. Um, so anyway, the point the point I'm making is that we can see we can see uh, echoes of this in our modern history of people who mm. have made their fortunes through their families or other means through the exploitation of, of natural resources, and that's also happening back back in the past. And um, as I say, maybe science is the only way that's going to kind of Get us there. Wow. So I've got I've gone from I'm gone from something that sounds quite niche, you know, yeah. like doing doing these analyses of bits of silver to get your assets all the way up to <laughs> Yeah, because I suppose yeah. this when you think about it, you know, we talk about third century and into fourth century that a lot of these emperors are of military stock mm. Uh, mm. and they come up through the army. But the thing is like if you get into power, okay, they don't often tend to stay there for very long. But to get into power and to hold on to it for a while, you need connections. Like you need to be, I'd say you need to be more than just simply a good soldier or a good commander. There needs to be more to it. And as you're saying, like if you're coming from a family who has got, you know, deposits of wealthy material, then that's a good way of... uh, Well, Augustus owned mines, didn't it? Augustus owned mines. Um, What's the first thing that the Romans did when they invaded Britain? They went straight to the west where the lead mines were and silver mines were and the gold mines in Wales. Mm. That's, that's the thing though, that's the thing after. That was payback. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you have to, you have to have the, yeah, military prowess is one thing, but if you don't have the capital behind you, you're not going to be able to, um, get, gain the support you need. I mean, basically, it's a, it's a huge system of corruption and bribery at the end of the day. Mm. Because, you know, in the late Roman Empire, it's all very formalised with, um, you know, the, the gifting of these certain donatives on the, you know, for various, to mark various anniversaries and so on. And, and that's a very tightly defined social structure. And so um, I, I wonder if actually that whole instability of the third century is because no one has the pa- that sort of power to to get that power base to last in power for long enough. Okay. <laughs> so you think Diocletian's got some minds? Well, yeah, I think I think there is a major change in the. In the I just think of the yeah. the famous Licinius plate. Or not? Does that does that come from one of his own? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, again, you know, let's start analysing that stuff to see. You know, yeah. so I suspect that those. Vessels probably do come from that source. I mean, there's a problem in the late Roman period because there's a lot of recycling, so we have to be a little bit careful. It's not going to be a, mm. you know, it's not going to give us all the answers, but it's still a, it's still an interesting area. I mean, it's a little bit like the, 
the work being being done on ancient DNA, I suppose. You yeah, know? now looking at that as a as much more of an insight yeah. into population movement. I suppose it is the DNA of objects, isn't it? Really, it's the DNA of objects. Yeah, that's very yeah. really nice. I like that. Yeah. It's funny oh, well, now the public. Right now. <laughs> the, yeah, you can definitely keep that in. Um, the public will. It's interesting because, um, and I always find it fascinating how the public uh, view history because. When I'm giving lectures about this subject, a hand will go up and they will always say, where was that, you know, where did that come from? What's it, you know, why have you not analysed it to tell you X? And it's Mm. funny because you just have to say, well, unfortunately, doing an analysis is not going to allow you um, to say, yes, in AD 320, they got this raw material from a mine in X place and then did this with it. You can't do that Mm. at the moment. But we might be heading to a place where we can do more and more of that sort of thing. So for someone interested in this material and its relations culturally and socially, um, for me, that's quite exciting as a sort of new stuff. Mm. I mean, the other thing is we... um, we now have a, uh, a full-time colour scientist. And I think the whole issue of colour in the ancient world is, is yeah. a really interesting one. Yeah. Um, because um, we still, most of the public and probably quite a lot of archaeologists will still think of classical world as this white kind of <laughs> bright shiny, yeah. you know, the light reflecting off these these white temples. And uh, we're completely wrong because that isn't how it looked. You know, no. stone sculpture was was the base for plaster and paint. Yeah, yeah. And they were trying to make the world look a colourful, interesting place, but what what that reflected reality. Mm. And that is, again, I think a really interesting area. Um, I think uh, Ellen's done a project on how the late antique world looked in terms of textiles and the colourfulness of it all. And I think think that's the other thing that we could... could, um, we can see a lot more of in the future. Mm. I guess it's about painting a, a richer picture, isn't it, of yeah. the past? Yeah, quite literally. Yeah, um, quite yeah, literally, yeah. 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 I, mean, I, th- I think that's really fascinating. It goes back to those kind of, at the end, misconceptions of the past. I imagine most people see a bust or a, a statue of the likes of Septimius Severus and they just presume he was a white guy. <laughs> and well, that's it's like, right, yeah. Yeah. you know, he would have probably, he would have had quite a dark skin color, very yeah. dark hair, yeah. you know, coming from North Africa. And so, Talked about a number of times on the podcast, like Caracalla as well, and Gita, mm. his sons, you know, they're half North African, half Syrian. You know, the complexion they would have had in their sculptures is nowhere near like this, this image that we see of them as being very white. And as you say, a lot of people probably on the street think that's how they would have mm. looked, but actually, you know, they, they, as you say, there's a lot more, a lot more color to everything than what people uh, often presume. Yeah, that's right. And I, th- I think that, that, those, that, to me, those are the areas that really spark my imagination and, mm. and start to make me think differently about it all. Yeah. So just to, to quickly round off then, uh, have you got anything that you'd like to promote at all at the moment? You say <laughs> article, you said the uh, article came out from the Empires of Faith or anything else? Well, I'm, I'm doing a, um, uh, well, I mean, it's, I suppose it's sort of media relationship really. I'm, I've got a, I've got a, um, we have these things called Curator's Corners at the museum, which is a, a short, a short film that we put on our, the British Museum channel. And I'm, I'm doing one on the, on the Tantalus Cup that I was telling you about, the wonderful, um, hemispherical bowl that came up in Eastern Europe so look out for that I suppose that's <laughs> what I'd say because I think it's quite a, a nice object yeah. um, I'm giving a I'm giving a um, I'm giving a talk at the Instrumentum Conference at King's about 
about the same topic actually. Is that the one about the conference about hordes? That's coming yeah, up? yeah, yeah. I think that's going to be a good good couple of days. So we'll do something like that. Um, I don't have any, don't have any major publications quite, quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so no, not those. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. And your, I mean, people can follow you on. Oh, People can follow you on Twitter as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm at a Hobbs BM, so yeah, they can follow me on Twitter. I don't, I'm not a big tweeter. I'm yeah. sorry, but <laughs> I should tweet more. Yeah, it's just hard. Like Twitter, yeah. it's uh, yeah. yeah, social media. I have an uh, on-off relationship with it myself. Yeah, yeah. going in and out of it, but yeah, just in case anybody uh, wants wants to keep yeah. up at all. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Right. Thanks a lot for doing this. Thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.